loves us, and we are so glad that we can be part of his kingdom, aren't we? We're so glad that the Lord Jesus has died for us and that we have trusted in him. So thank you for sharing that song, just about trusting the Lord in every day, every single day we trust. Well, if you would take your Bibles, please, for this evening's uh, message from God's Word, it is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll continue off of the outline that I shared this morning. The title of this message is The Marks of a Healthy and Growing Church, because the the Thessalonian church was, was just really a, a remarkable church. It is the only time that the Apostle Paul said, you take a look at this church for a pattern. This is a church that you can set your example of ministry after. So it's a, it's, I think that's a very powerful thought and phrase. And so we want to look and see what was this church like and how can we at Faith Baptist be like the Thessalonian church? And we can grow and we can serve the Lord as they did. So let's pray. Uh, If you need an outline, there are some outlines on the back table. But we're basically looking tonight at seven characteristics of a healthy, growing church. And I want you to evaluate in your own personal life if that's what you are like. And even think of us as a church family. Is this what we're like as a church family? So let's ask God to bless his word in our lives as we meditate on it and we seek to apply it. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God. It is our strength. It is our source of encouragement and comfort. It teaches us and it builds us up and it encourages us. And thank you that tonight we have these words of encouragement from a very concerned apostle who feels almost like a parent for this church. And he's concerned that they would remain steadfast and continue, continue to grow and be strong and healthy. And Father, that's what we want for our own local church here. We want to love and care for one another in a way that pleases you. And we also want to reach the last so this entire region can be impacted by the gospel. So thank you, Father, for giving us the word of God and the Holy Spirit to teach us and to empower us to obey. May Jesus Christ be glorified tonight. Amen. So remember that the, um, that the Thessalonian church was just a very remarkable church. We saw this morning uh, that the city of Thessalonica was much like Duluth. It was built on a bluff. It was a port city, so a lot of boats and ships would, would dock there, and so there would be a lot of tourists and a lot of visitors and a lot of merchants. It also had a major highway, the Ignatian Highway, going right through the center of downtown, much like we have I-35 running. So we have road traffic, we have port traffic, just like Thessalonica did. We also know that the Apostle Paul came and visited this, this city on his second missionary journey. We, we saw this morning a picture of what he looked like. The Apostle Paul, after the first missionary journey to the region of Galatia, remember we went through the whole book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul was beaten. He had been um, stoned to death in Lystra, so no doubt his body had bruises and broken bones and um, definitely looked, looked like he had been through a battle. But now already on his second missionary journey in Philippi, remember the magistrates in Philippi? They stripped him and Silas beat him with stripes, so no doubt his back would have been wide open with fresh wounds, and he was beaten with rods. So with a Roman rod, bones would be broken or shattered, and who knows how he limped into Thessalonica 100 miles away. But he shows up in the marketplace, bruised, bandaged, bleeding, um, probably still diseased from the eye condition he had in Galatia, and he's there with Silas, and he's preaching the gospel. And as he's preaching in the marketplace and in the synagogue, people are responding. 
we know that some of the leading women in the city, the women that had positions of power in the Roman Empire trusted in the Lord. We also know many devout Greeks, and we saw from the Bible this morning that some, we know some individuals. Aristarchus, remember Aristarchus of Thessalonica? He was, his name means best ruler. So you have somebody in the upper class, some leading politician trusts in Jesus and is a born-again believer. And then we have a man named Secundus, in Acts chapter 20, he is from Thessalonica. And Secundus comes from the name Second. Remember Tertius and Cortus? Secundus, well, Primus, Secundus, Tertius, and Cortus are all slave names. So here you have ministering with the Apostle Paul, one of the leading politicians of this gigantic city. It's a city the size of Duluth. And you have a slave alongside Paul, preaching and proclaiming the gospel on different ministry trips. Amazing how the gospel transforms all of our lives. Isn't it amazing? And then we also have uh, Demas. We saw from the Bible that Demas most likely came from Thessalonica because after years of faithful ministry with the Apostle Paul, he finally just gave up and he loved the present world. He left the ministry and went back to Thessalonica. So he most likely was from Thessalonica. But one more man, Gaius was also from um, Thessalonica. So we already can begin to put in our mind what the church was like. There were workers, working men and women like you and I. Uh, we can already identify certain ones of their names. We already saw how they, heard the, how they heard the Apostle Paul explain and reason and demonstrate from the Scripture that Jesus, the Messiah, must suffer and rise again on the third day. So the same gospel. Oh, you guys, there's so much going on in the Thessalonian church that is so similar to ours. I feel like we're almost the same thing, geography-wise and people-wise and, of course, gospel-wise. So it's Really encouraging. Now remember, the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's not a corrective book. Paul is not trying to correct their behavior or their beliefs. He's trying to just, he wants to encourage them to be steadfast and faithful and get better and better at what they're doing. So they were loving one another. Now they needed to go above and beyond that and abound in that love. They were reaching the lost. They just needed to keep on doing it and build up the passion and the fervency in proclaiming the gospel. So it is a book of just encouragement, one and after another, encouraging word after encouraging word. So this morning we saw in Paul's praise of the Thessalonian church before God, he remembered three things. Remember that what was the first thing he, he remembered? Their work of faith. Their work of faith was their justification. They placed their trust in Jesus and he was thankful for that. That's how you're born into God's family. That's how you become part of the church is you are you have this work of faith. You trust in Jesus. What was the second thing that he remembered and praised the Lord for? Labor of love. And the idea of labor is you, you are working to the point of, of sweat and tears. You are laboring to serve one another. You're doing your very best for others. Regardless of getting anything, in, all you're looking for is what benefits the other. I will do it at whatever cost with no expectation of return. They may never appreciate me, they may never like me, they may never whatever, but I will still be loving and kind and I will extend, that's agape love. And these labors of love were going on, it was just a wonderful church. And then what was the third thing he remembered and praised the the Lord for? Their patience of hope. The whole idea that they were waiting for Jesus Christ to return, so they were patient. They were willing to suffer knowing that the Lord would come back at any moment. So what a church to have this faith, hope, and this love. So tonight, let's take a quick look at some of these characteristics that Paul considers. We're now looking at verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. And what Paul does is he reminds them of where they came from. 
of things that took place in the last six months or so. So put yourself, pretend you're the Thessalonians. We've got Aristarchus over here. We have Demas over here. Gaius and his family are back there. Um, we have Secundus over here someplace. Maybe they just finished doing a special. I mean, who knows? But now everybody is seated, and, and the church is beginning to grow and to learn. Here's what Paul reminds them of as they read this very personal letter. Chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says this, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. You know what Paul remembers and reminds them of? They had a genuine conversion experience. They didn't just go from one religion to another. They were actually involved in a personal relationship with the living God. So I would say number one is a genuine conversion. They received the gospel in power and in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4 again. Paul knew this and they knew it. Knowing, verse 4, beloved brethren, your election by God. They were part of the elect. They knew they were part of God's elect. I want to ask you tonight, do you know that you are part of God's elect? God's elect are those who have trusted in Jesus. Those who are born again and are part of his family, they are the elect. Now, the elect are, is anyone, man or woman, boy or girl, who places their trust in Jesus Christ. And you can know that you are one of the elect. Paul says, I want to remind you that you are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Now, be careful. God does not choose some for heaven and some for hell. He's not up in heaven saying, heaven, 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 hell, 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 heaven, heaven. He doesn't elect us in that way. But those who trust in him are part of the elect. Those who, before the foundation of the world, God has chosen to live with him forever in heaven. So take your Bibles. Go with me to Romans chapter 8 quickly. I want to take you through a five-link chain to help you understand a little bit about this election and how you can know for sure that you're one of the elect. Romans chapter 8. And let's take a look at verse 28. Romans 8, 28. Paul said to the Thessalonians, knowing, beloved brethren, that you are elect by God. You are chosen by God. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, And we know something else. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So there's a group of people that all things are working together for a common end purpose. And it's a good purpose. It is working together for good. It doesn't mean the circumstance you're in is good or necessarily pleasant or fun, but everything is driving for a good result, a good end. All things, everything in your life, every circumstance, every day, things are working together to produce this good for those that are particularly who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, for the ones he foreknew that would trust him and and receive him and love him, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So you have five terms. You have foreknowledge. You have God for new people. 
He predestined them, he called them, he justified them, he glorified them. They are all past tense, right? You all agree? He glorified, everything is past tense. Although, how many people have been glorified? Nobody. So, it's like this. Before the foundation of the world, God knew he would create everything. He knew he would create mankind. He knew that many of mankind would rebel against him. They would hate him. They would reject him. But he also knew some would believe and trust in him. And those are the chosen ones, the elect ones. So he foreknew this. And everyone who trusts him, he predestines. Not to heaven or hell, but if you trust him, you are guaranteed to be conformed into his image. So on October 1st, 1993, when I trusted in Jesus, I was then, I knew I was one of the elect. I knew it. I was one of the elect. I knew I had been chosen before the foundations of the world for salvation. And I also knew no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to be made into Jesus Christ's image. Right? No matter what the world does to me, no matter what others do, I am going to be made into the image of Jesus. It is a guarantee. But I also know then that I'm a called one. He called me by the gospel and I responded. So I'm foreknown. I am predestined to be like Jesus and I am called. But then it says this, those he also justified. So when did I get justified? The moment I trusted in Jesus, October 1st, 1993. And then the guarantee is what? The ones who justified, what did he do? He glorified them. So this is why I'm guaranteed I'm going to be glorified in heaven. It is an absolute guarantee. So let's say this. Let's say the elect group is 25 people only. Now, it's much bigger than that, but let's say it's 25 people. Those whom God foreknew would be 25 people before the foundation of the earth. How many people then would be predestined to be like Christ? 25. How many then would be called? Exactly 25. He's not going to miss one. It's not going to be 24. It's going to be 25. Then if there's 25 called ones, how many will be justified? Exactly 25. And then how many will be glorified? Exactly 25. So if, how do I, I... I don't know if I'm foreknown. I don't know if I'm predestined. And I don't know if I'm called. And I don't know if I will be glorified. What's the only one of the five that I can know for sure? Justification. If you trust Jesus tonight, if you place your faith in him alone, not in religion, not in good works, if you trust him alone, you are immediately in the justified group. If you're justified, what does it mean? You've been foreknown, predestined, and called, and you know you're going to be glorified. So that, listen, people in the marketplace of Thessalonica, there were leather workers, there were um, restaurants, people cooking food all day, there were people selling baskets, there were people selling spices. All of these things were going on. And there's an Aristarchus and a Secundus and a Gaius, and they trust in Jesus, they immediately become one of the elect group. And then they know they've been called, they know they've been foreknown and predestined, and they know they're going to be glorified. So what do I do? I preach the gospel, and I pray everyone will trust in Jesus. And those who do, they become part of the elect. So I'm going to ask you, are you part of the elect? If you, have, if you don't trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't realize he died for your sins and the sins of the world as a substitute, then you have to pay them yourself in a lake of fire for all eternity. You trust in Jesus, you automatically become one of the chosen ones. That's, so our part is placing faith in Jesus. His part is foreknowing, predestining to make us like Jesus, calling us, justifying us, and glorifying us. He, he, gets all, he does all of that with the guarantee. Our response is simply, we have to believe him. How many in Thessalonica believed? Some. 
Doesn't say many, just some. And in Duluth and Superior, and this whole area, how many have trusted Jesus? Just some. Not many, but some. Praise the Lord for the some. So these Thessalonians, they knew without a shadow of a doubt, we're part of the chosen ones. God chose us. And I'll tell you what, it says, Beloved brethren, we are greatly loved of God. God loves us. And you have to know that when you, when you become a believer. So go back to 1 Thessalonians. I want to give you three descriptions of how the gospel came into Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, let's look at verse 5. They know, and he calls them beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, verse 5, look at this. For our gospel, the gospel is the good news. The gospel is, first of all, know the bad news. The bad news is every person on earth deserves to die and go to hell. Our sin deserves to place us in hell for an eternity. That's the bad news. The good news, which is another word for gospel, is that Jesus came and bore our sin, took our sin upon himself so that we could be set free. So it's a great exchange, a great substitute. That's the gospel. Paul says this, Hey, our gospel did not come in word only. It's not like I was just telling a story about a man's life and he got crucified one day and then he rose from the dead. It wasn't just words coming out of my mouth. There are three descriptions. He says, but, the, but it came, the gospel came in power. Listen, I don't think it's miracles. Although I think miracles took place in the early church, I don't think Paul is saying the gospel came with lots of miracles. Because we don't read of that happening in Thessalonica. Here's what it means. The gospel comes in power. It, sh- it radically changes your life. Radically. Do you understand that? The Thessalonians had a radical change in their life when they were saved. They, didn't get, they weren't born again and then simply drifted along in their same old life. For me, listen, October 1st, 1993, I was sitting in the hospital room and I was completely lost. I was dead in my trespasses and sins and if I died, I would go to hell. I know that. When, and I had heard the gospel here at this church many times. But while I'm sitting in the hospital bed and my Bible is by my side and um, Pastor Lapine had given me a little note card, it was 1 John 1, 7 through 9, because I didn't understand this at all. I, I had no interest. I didn't know where to start. I mean, I could read the first verse and get, maybe get that. But after that, ooh, the rest of Genesis was beyond me. So I was reading this note card. For if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And I'm thinking, what does it mean to walk in light and to have fellowship? I don't know, but it sounds like a fun time. I like the sun and I like people. So yes, I can handle that. And then it says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I was thinking, how does blood cleanse sin? Blood, that's gross. I hate blood. I hate needles. I I can't stand blood. I don't get it. Blood and sin, how how does it cleanse sin? And then I thought, you know what? It's not my problem. I don't sin. I mean, I'm not as bad as most people. I'm the president of the, of the Civic Club in West Duluth. Uh, I do good things. I help people. I run a music store. We do um, trips all over the United States um, many times just for free to encourage people. I mean, hey, I'm a good guy. And I thought, I certainly don't sin. But the next verse says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. When, when I read that, I realized... I have sinned against a holy God, and I'm deceived in my mind. Jesus came. His blood was shed so I could be... I I got it right away. Jesus died in my place for my sins, and then he rose again so I could be set free. I'll tell you what. It was an instant. I know, like, in the evening at, like, 6.30, I was dead, 
to life. And then the next moment, I woke up and I understood absolutely not everything, but I understood it. I, began, I opened the Bible and I'm like, I get it. I understand now. Uh, you know, I believed in evolution. Now I believed in creation. It did not take any type of... It didn't take anything for that to go... You know, listen, I used to live a certain lifestyle and do, and do certain things and say certain things. Those, there was just a radical transformation. Now, I don't know if that is the way it is with everybody, but it was for the Thessalonians. The gospel, it wasn't just words, but when they believed the gospel about Jesus Christ, then it, there was power for a changed life. And we'll see that. We'll see that in just a little bit when they turned from their idols to worship the true and living God. So that's what the gospel is all about. Transforming our lives. Giving us a new birth. Now the second thing that came, the gospel came not just in power, but in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerated them. The Holy Spirit indwelt them. And they knew it. Listen, when people are born again today, it seems like they just... It almost seems like there's no change, there's no hunger or thirst for righteousness, there's no desire for the Bible, there's no desire for corporate worship. It, maybe those aren't genuine conversions. That's why I said the first mark of a healthy church, genuine conversions. I can tell you in the last 20 years, men and women that have come and sat here and they have had certain lives and lifestyles and behavior patterns and they trust in Jesus and you can tell the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in their life. You can, and they even say, I'm totally different. I'm totally different. Remember Mac McGinnis? He'd always do this because I'd go over to his house and, and Mac would say, well, pastor, my life used to be like this, but since I met Jesus, it's like this. He turned everything upside down. What, the things he used to love to do, he doesn't do anymore. And the things he want, that the Lord loves, he does. And he was just like, he'd always say this. He'd go, yep, that, this is my life. Completely different when I was born again. That's what happened to the Thessalonians. So Paul's reminding them, hey, listen, Thessalonians, you had a genuine conversion. It came with power, it came with the Holy Spirit, and it came in much assurance. Those who delivered the message were so sure of the truth. I think it's more the messenger's con assurance, convictions, not the people's convictions. I think Paul's, Paul says it came in power, the Holy Spirit, and the message was delivered with conviction. You want to know what we need in our evangelism? We need conviction. We need absolute assurance that we have the truth. If you had the cure for cancer, would, be, would you be ashamed about it? No. If you had the cure for cancer, what would you be doing? You'd be on every major news network saying, I've got the cure for cancer. Come see me. So we have the news for eternal life. Somebody dies without Jesus, they perish for all eternity, and we've got the news we need to give that with much assurance. We have the answer to mankind's sin. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul did. He'd go into the city, and with much assurance and with power and the Holy Spirit, lives were transformed. Why is that not happening in this world, in our country? Well, let's keep going. Look at the second thing, verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that marks a healthy and growing church, they were followers of the apostles, of the apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord. You know the word follower? Mimic. They were imitating. They're imitating the life and the pattern, the speech and the behavior of Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas were modeling their life after who? 
Jesus Christ. So ultimately, they were following or mimicking or imitating Jesus Christ. People need to see Jesus Christ in us. They need to see us talk and respond like Jesus. If we don't, we are sending a totally different message than what we're speaking. And the two will contradict, and your behavior, your life pattern will speak the loudest. You believe me? I can say I'm a Christian all day long. I can go to school and say I'm a pastor, and I, I'm uh, preaching about Jesus all the time. But if my life doesn't back it up, the words are, have no effect. They will not believe me. They will not hear our lives need to become patterns and, and imitating those, the life of Jesus. And so they were genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And it says, my third point, so my second point is they were genuine imitators. My third point, they had a joyful endurance in tribulation. A joyful endurance in tribulation. Look at the end of verse 6. They received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Listen. Their conversion was so hard. When they, when they trusted in Jesus, immediately everybody in the culture attacked them. So take your Bibles quickly. Go with me to Acts 17. How would you like the church to, your church or our church to start out like this? Acts 17, verse 5. We covered the first four verses in the introduction this morning, but now let's take a look at the affliction that they endured. Acts 17, verse 5. We're going to meet another man of the Thessalonian church, by the way. Acts 17, verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, they didn't trust in Jesus, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Hey, this word evil men, get this. It's the idea of idle men. People that aren't working. They're just laying around, mooching off everybody. And what... What the Jewish people do, they take all these idlers, all these people not working, and they say, hey, come follow me. I've got a job for you. Well, let's have some fun. Let's break some bones and make a mess here. And that's why I think Paul is saying later on in the book, he'll say, get to work. Every Thessalonian should get, get to work. Just do something with your hands. Labor, do something. Don't sit and be idle. I don't think it was just that they were waiting for Jesus to return. I think they should not be identifying with the idlers in the marketplace that could gather up into a mob. And so here, listen to this. They gathered, they gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So Paul has moved from the synagogue. He's in Jason's house. Now, uh, they believe Jason's house is, is maybe nearby or whatever, but they're meeting in Jason's house, and the mob shows up on the front door to take away Paul and Silas and whoever else is there. Verse uh, 6, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren, some other people from the church, to the rulers of the city, and they cried out, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now what a testimony of the gospel's power. Changed the world upside down. The impact of the world was so tremendous. I bet bars were shutting down. I bet casinos were shutting down. I bet um, places where drugs were being sold were beginning to shut down. And, and we know for sure silversmiths and those who made idols had a huge drop in business. So it, their, their faith affected their life and affected their culture and environment. If every born-again believer followed after Jesus, imitated him, do you know what would happen in our country? I'm serious. Do you know what would happen in our country if every born, truly born-again believer simply followed Jesus and 
separated themselves from our culture? I'll tell you what, um, a lot of things wouldn't be happening that are happening right now. There'd be much more restraint of evil, I will guarantee it. But what can we do as a small church? This is a small group, and they're impacting the whole city of Thessalonica. The whole city is being affected. And so verse 7, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the degrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So Jason's brought before the, the political leaders. Hey, listen to this. In the early church, I have a quote here. This is from, this is from a, a writing. This is from extra-biblical archaeology. There was an oath that people would have to take in a city like Thessalonica. Here's the oath that they, would have to, that they would have to take. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought. We're pledging allegiance to who? Caesar. It says this, that in whatsoever concerns them, Caesar and his family, I will spare neither my body nor soul nor life nor children. In other words, I will do whatever I can to promote and to elevate the emperor, even if it means my own children or my own life or my own body. It says this, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. You would have to give allegiance to the Caesar by saying an oath like that. And here, when Paul's given the gospel, what are they saying? No way will I give allegiance to Caesar. Who's their allegiance to? Jesus Christ. And immediately, what, is the, what, is the people, what do the people in the community think? They're, they're, going against, they're rebelling against Caesar. They're saying there's another king, Jesus, which was absolutely true. And verse 8, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the leaders said, All right, Jason, give us a sum of money and don't cause any more problems. If you do, there's bigger trouble for you. So they just got some cash from Jason, let him go. So how did they receive the gospel? With much affliction, but with joy of the Holy Spirit. Is that amazing, you guys? Is it amazing that the early church, this church in Thessalonica, could follow after Jesus, but then endure such affliction and still be found worthy, still be found giving allegiance to Jesus? We, we don't even get any persecution and we don't want to give allegiance to him for some reason. If, if persecution came upon us, probably many people would say, no way, I don't want a part of it. But here, the church is birthed in this whole spirit of tribulation, ro- mob revolts, and persecution. Hey, do you remember what it says in, Roman, in Hebrews 10? In Hebrews 10, it says that when pe- this group of people were first enlightened by the gospel... They joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods for the sake of the gospel. They thought when somebody came and plundered their goods, they thought, well, that's a less of a headache for me. I can now give more allegiance to Jesus. I can give more passion to him. I can follow him more. That was the attitude early on in the Christianity. Listen, you guys, I think when you trust in Jesus at first, it's fresh and it's exciting and it's new. And then after 10 years or 20 years, it begins to like fade for some reason. We don't stay fresh walking with the Lord. I've seen it over and over and over again. And the Thessalonians, man, they're like six months old. And they were willing to accept all the tribulation and persecution. And what does Paul say? Keep going. Don't stop. 
endure through the tribulation, endure through the persecution. So they became followers of Jesus, even with much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. And now, back to 1 Thessalonians, please. For maybe just one or two more. We're almost done. Look at what else models this church, sets this church out as an example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. They had a genuine conversion. They were really born again with power, the Holy Spirit, and much assurance. They became genuine followers of Jesus, and they were joyful in tribulation. The next one, verse 7, they became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. They became examples. The word means to imprint. Like, to imprint upon the, the stamp of an image on a coin. So I have an ancient coin here. My friend Uzi, who's a Quite the archaeologist, he uh, has passed away now. But um, I have two coins, and, and these are ancient coins, and they have imprints. This one has uh, two sheaves of wheat imprinted. You know, with some type of skillful labor doing that. And this one has the head of a Caesar, very faint head of a Caesar. But this is what the word is. The word is a type, a tupan. It means an imprint. The early church, the Thessalonian church, was. A, an imprint of what we should do as a church. They were an example that set before all believers, here's how you should live, here's how you should behave, here's how you should live out the gospel. Hey, our church needs to be an example in our community of a church that does that. We need to be a church that sets an example for others. And it says in verse 7, their example was to everybody in Macedonia and Achaia. A huge region Macedonia, all northern Greece, Achaia, all the way down to Athens and Corinth, the whole peninsula. Everybody heard about the Thessalonians. They were such a good example to follow. And then he says this, verse 8, For from you, from these Thessalonian believers, there weren't many of them, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. It is echoed. So what's another characteristic of a healthy church? The joyful proclamation of the gospel everywhere. It's the proclamation of the gospel everywhere. Listen, they had ships coming in and out of port. What do you think they were doing? Sharing the gospel with the men and women coming off of the ships. Because when they leave and they go down to Alexandria, they go over to Israel, they go to um, Asia Minor, what are they taking with them? The gospel. When people are on the interstate, the the Ignatian Highway, and they're giving the gospel to men and women traveling on the road, Wherever they go, what are they talking about? Hey, those Thessalonians, they turned from serving Zeus and other gods, they're serving Jesus as God. And that just went everywhere. So look at our, look at our community. Do you know how many people come and go out of this city that we could somehow get the gospel to? And they could take the gospel to all parts of the world just because we're impacting them right here? We've got people coming in and out of ships at the harbor. We've got people on the interstate driving up this way all the time. How do we reach them so that they could leave this area having heard the gospel from us? And this is what the Thessalonians were known for. Even Paul heard that everybody that came from that region heard the gospel from the Thessalonians, so much so that verse 8 says, your faith toward God has gone out. We don't need to say anything. They had already given the gospel to people, so when Paul met them, they didn't have to say anything. How would you like that, that the gospel would be so saturated, somebody could come up and say, wow, there's no need, I don't have anything to say because you've already shared the gospel with them. You've already given the good news. So that's a mark of a healthy church, proclaiming the gospel vigorously everywhere. And then verse 9, 
So for they themselves declare concerning us, the they is the people from around the world, the region of Macedonia and Achaia and every other place, these people would talk to Paul concerning the Thessalonians about how Paul came into their city and gave the gospel. Look at the end of verse 9. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. By the way, that's their, um, the first part. They turn to God from idols. That's their work of faith. To serve Jesus, that's their labor of love. Um, and to wait for his son from heaven, that's their patience of hope. So all three are once again found right here. All right, let's finish. We'll just finish quickly with this. Are you guys still with me? Just for one more, a couple more minutes. Here's how it worked in the Greek culture. We watched a video in our Sunday school class a week ago with Vic. I think it was very insightful, and it was very accurate. But in that culture, to do anything, you would have to bow down to some of their stone idols. If you went to the marketplace, you would have to bow down before certain idols to purchase things or to be part of that or to even sell things in the marketplace. If you wanted to be, if you were one of the leaders in the politarch in the Senate or the um, assembly of leaders, political leaders in the city, you would have to take incense, put a pinch of incense on the altar and give your allegiance to the to the king, to Caesar or to the, the, the government leaders. And if you didn't, you had no place to buy stuff or sell stuff in the marketplace, and you had no authority anymore in the assembly of the, of the politics of the day. So if you turn your back from those idols, you are really affecting your social and your community and your home life. You are affecting every part of your life. And these Thessalonians knew that that's what they needed to do. They had to turn from their idols... And by turning, by, when they turned to God, they were already turning their back on their idols. And they would refuse to, to participate in all the idol worship. They just refused. They gave their allegiance and their love and devotion to Jesus Christ alone. So that was their work of faith. They turned to God from idols. Notice, they didn't stop their idol worship first. They turned to God, and in doing so, idol worship was done for them. Hey, by the way, you know what the Corinthian problem was? The Corinthians couldn't get, couldn't get over that. So many of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, they were actually eating idol meat in a pagan temple. They didn't stop serving the idols. So they would have communion in church with the believers, and the next day they'd go to the temple of Apollos, and they would eat idol meat in the temple, in an idol temple, and Paul says, when you do that, you're sacrificing your meat to, to demons. They're not just stone objects. They're stone objects with demon forces behind them. You can't, you can't do that. God is a jealous God. You can't, you can't serve both gods. Have allegiance to Jesus alone. See, the Corinthians battled that. The Thessalonians, they didn't. They turned their back on those gods when they turned to Jesus. And then it says this, to serve the true and living God. So that's their labor of love. This, these acts of service, and then they were waiting for Jesus who comes from heaven, who's going to save them from the tribulation or the wrath to come. So, they, were, they turned their back on idolatry. That was my next point. A total transformation, number six, a total transformation from idolatry. And then number seven, there was an expectant looking for the return of Christ. Why They were just looking and waiting for his return. And that's what our church needs to do turn our back on the idols of this world, 
put our attention and focus on Jesus coming back, proclaim the gospel everywhere, be imitators and followers of Jesus, set an example to other churches of what godly ministry looks like, and be sure that we have genuine conversion. People are really born again. See, these are all of the things that we need to have in our church, and they need to be part of our life as well. So we're going to continue on. Now, next Sunday morning, we are going to have the Lord's Supper in the morning. And we'll continue on with 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But take a look the rest of this week at these marks of a healthy and growing church. And let's make sure that this is where our church is at. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this text of scripture. There's so many details about the Thessalonians and how you worked in them. The, the gospel came with power. It just radically transformed lives. It came with um, the Holy Spirit and much assurance. They turned their back on idols as they served you. Um, they were proclaiming the gospel everywhere. They were setting themselves up as examples and followers of Jesus. And they were waiting for you to send the Son from heaven. So these are things we want to do and be busy about until the rapture. We want to be busy giving the gospel out, laboring and serving others in love. We want to set an example to other churches of godly ministry, and we want to be followers of Jesus in our attitude, our words, our actions. Everything should be affected by the gospel. So thank you that you've been changing our life, and we pray for more radical transformations as we give the gospel to the lost in our community. I pray that we would get the gospel out to the rest of the world, whether it's through the internet, through our missionaries in different countries, through handing out gospel tracts, whatever we can do to reach the lost with the gospel. Thank you again, Father, for our local church. Continue to protect this church and and strengthen her. In Jesus' name, amen. Say, before 